We are grateful for the ministry of both our young singers as well as our bell choir and worship leadership on this third Sunday in the season of Advent. Throughout Advent, we have been modeling the ministry of John the Baptist and preparing our hearts and our minds for the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist, of course, was not only the cousin to Jesus, but was the one, according to the scriptures, who was sent ahead to prepare the world to receive the good news that was swiftly approaching. And so we have turned our attention to the story of John's life, beginning two Sundays ago with the story of his announcement to his mother and father, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Last week, we turned to the story of his birth and considered the ways that it invites us to surrender pieces of our own lives and trust to God's work. This week, we meet John as an adult out in the wilderness, going about the ministry to which he has been called, a ministry that if it were to be summarized in one word, it might be a ministry of repentance. So friends, let us listen once more for a word from God as we hear these verses from the third chapter of Luke's gospel beginning with the first verse. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. John went out into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, saying, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all people, all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him there in the wilderness, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. What should we do then? And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came out to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Do not collect any more than you are required to, John told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And John replied, do not extort money. And do not accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water. 
but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, send your spirit down into our midst now. Send your spirit, O God, that it would be like fire in our hearts. Indeed, that the meditations which stir within and the words of my mouth through the work of your spirit would be pleasing and glorifying to you. For you and you alone, O God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Y'all ever think about those stories about how if things had been just one or two degrees different, the ultimate outcome itself would have been dramatically different as well? Like if Christopher Columbus had been just a, a few clicks further off course, or if the mathematicians behind the Apollo space program had just been a fraction of a thousandth of a decimal off on their calculations which sent a rocket hurtling through empty space. Y'all ever think about those decisions about what if I had chosen different about where to move and when to go and ultimately about who that caused me to meet along the way. I read a story a few weeks ago about a woman who turned 21 on June 3rd, 1944. She was a post office assistant at a remote village in Western Ireland, and part of her duties were to take meteorological readings and report them to the headquarters in Dublin. She did this on the hour, every hour. She was working the night shift that night of her birthday, and so at 1 a.m. she went out and she took all the readings, temperature, wind, barometric pressure, and she radioed it off and didn't think another thing of it. A few hours later, the phone rang there in the post office, and on the other end was a woman with a crisp British accent. She was urgently asking this woman there at her post to recheck and to verify the numbers that she had radioed in. And sure enough, they were correct. It'd be many years later until the woman there in that post office learned that the numbers she reported that night had ultimately landed on the desk of a general named Dwight D. Eisenhower. And together with his meteorological team, they had studied those numbers and determined that there was a major storm system brewing off the west coast of Ireland that in just a matter of days would sweep across Western Europe. And on those numbers alone, they made the decision to delay the invasion that would become D-Day. I read that story and I thought to myself, you know, what if that woman in her bleary-eyedness at 1 a.m. in the dark, if she had misread those measurements, just a fraction? Or what if she had thought to herself, well, I'm out here in the middle of nowhere, what, what could possibly be the worst that would happen if I just skipped this reading and picked it back up in a few hours? How would things have been different? How would our world be different? Anyway, 
John the Baptist in our reading today, I think it's pretty clear that he is forecasting a major storm out there on the horizon. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to read this story from the third chapter of Luke's gospel and figure out that John is looking at some building clouds and flashing lightning there in the wilderness and concluding that things as they are are not okay. Right? The leadership, these people with names like Caesar and Herod and Pontius Pilate and, and Caiaphas, they're all corrupt. The path John sees, it's anything but straight. It is crooked and windy. The fruit is sour. Right? John is out there in the wilderness and he concludes that God's creation is more than just a few degrees off course. And he preaches this fiery sermon. That's really what these first 16 verses of chapter 3 of Luke are. It's this, this fiery sermon. He calls his audience, all of you, a brood of vipers. He warns of, of God's coming wrath. I can't help but get the sense that he's, he's coming at this fast and strong because he wants to shake his world out of their collective stupor. He wants people to realize that without some real tangible change, some real tangible shift in their living, they risk passing wide of the one who is coming, the one who is more powerful than even John, the one who will baptize not just with water, but with fire and the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist in this passage is calling for course correction. And he even has a word for it, repentance. You know, I've always thought of repentance, which literally means to turn around as being a kind of 180 degree proposition or nothing. Right? If I am to repent, then I need to fully turn around and walk back in the direction from which I have come. Now, to be sure, I think John the Baptist is aware, just as we are, that there are things in our world and there are things in each of our lives that we absolutely need to turn around completely. Those destructive habits, those toxic, abusive relationships, that unchecked greed or lust, that blind hatred some of us hold tight in the dark corners of our hearts. Hatred not only of others, but of ourselves as well. I think John is clear, and we should be too, that there are things we need to fully repent of. But I can't help but wonder if perhaps there is space here to think about repentance as also including the other 179 degrees on the face of the compass. Right, I'm struck here by John's response to the crowd's question. Right, he preaches to them, brood of vipers, coming wrath. And the response of the crowd is probably the response many of us would have. What should we do then, John? What should we do, right? The soldiers and the tax collectors, they come to him and they say, John, what should we do? Should we leave it all behind? Should we quit our occupations? 
And John tells them no. John doesn't tell them to quit everything in their lives. Instead, John tells them to shift the way they approach their work, to begin doing it with integrity. What is it he says? Don't collect any more than you're required to. Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. He doesn't tell them to leave it all behind. He tells them to shift instead to a way of living and working that models more the model of Christ, the one who is to come. The people with clothing and food, they come to John. What should we do? Should we give it all away? And John says, no, but share what you have. Take what is enough and then give the rest away. Repent, John tells them. Change course, turn a degree or two or three or 30 back toward God toward a life that models humility and generosity and grace and compassion. Now, I know some will hear this and they'll say, Alan, you're watering down John the Baptist. And you may be right. Because there is plenty of evidence and we should not ignore the fact that John the Baptist does not mince words. John the Baptist is not one for tokenism. He sees real problems in front of him and in his world, and he says things need to change. But still, when I look to John's life and the fact that his life's mission, as we talked about last week, was to prepare the way for the new thing that God was about to do in Jesus Christ, When we think about that mission and the fact that in doing that new thing that God does in Jesus Christ, God introduces to the world then and the world now this new reality that it is never too late for any of us to start on a new course. No matter how subtle or how dramatic, It is never too late for any of us to start on a new course, whether individually or as a community. I can't help but wonder if John didn't also have that gray area in between zero and 180 degrees in mind as well. I think it's an important point to remember what we just said, that repentance is not just individual. Repentance also comes in the communities and the world as a whole in which we live and belong. There was an op-ed in last week's Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It was written by Rachel Bregman, a name we've mentioned here a number of times in recent weeks, our friend, the rabbi in Brunswick. And Rachel was talking about all the new things that happened in our community, new and beautiful things through the trial that we walked through for some six or seven weeks in November, or October rather, in November. She says, our community in many ways has modeled a new way for our nation and for our world. We have modeled a new way where we can approach tragedy, horrific tragedy, peacefully 
and with order. We've modeled a way that a community can be prepared for any outcome. But she says in this piece, she says, we need to be careful if we begin thinking that we're closer to the finish line than the starting line of this work. She titled her piece, Before Healing Must Come Reckoning. When I read it, I thought to myself, that could have just as easily been before healing must come repentance. She talks in this piece, you know, before healing comes, before healing comes, all of us, we have to reckon with and repent of the fact that something like this could happen in our community in the first place. We have to reckon with and repent of the fact that that there are systems in our community that almost allowed this tragedy to go unnoticed. We have to reckon with and repent of the fact that each of us, in big ways and small, we have to own our own culpability in all of it. She asked the question in this piece, she says, you know, when people ask me what's next, I've come to realize that what they're really asking is, is it possible to right the wrongs of our past? Is it possible to right the wrongs of our past? Will you be the ones? She's got this great line right after that. She says, you know, the simple question hides within it a courageous hope that perhaps we will be the ones who say yes. Is it possible to right the wrongs of our past? Within the question is the courageous hope that we will be the ones who say yes. What should we do? The crowds ask John the Baptist. What should we do? The crowds ask John the Baptist. John, can picking up the phone And calling the person who I have resisted calling for a long, long time. Can that actually make a difference? John, can beginning the work of of letting go of the last tether of that grudge that I've been carrying around like a weight around my ankles. Can that really make a difference? John can beginning to look at the hurt that I have been holding quietly in my own heart, the hurt that I know has made me hurt others in the way that I have been hurt, can be beginning to do some of that hard work. Can it actually make a difference? John, can turning my life toward the one that you are proclaiming is about to come, can turning my life to the one who will be born again, the one who will live and be baptized, the one who will die on a cross and be resurrected again from a tomb, can turning my life towards that one actually make a difference? Can turning, if only a degree, towards the good news Can it actually be the thing that finally delivers me 
delivers us to the shores of the new life that God God yearns for us to know? Can healing actually follow repentance? According to John the Baptist, the simple question contains a courageous hope that the answer, friends, the answer then and the answer now, the answer in Jesus Christ is a resounding 